we are continuing our study of America and God. And we want to talk specifically this morning about the concept of honest work. Remember our foundational scripture, Righteousness exalteth the nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. And of all the peoples on the earth, here in the United States of America, we are most blessed. We have a wonderful climate in this great land. From Maine to California, from Washington to Florida, from Alaska to Hawaii, the richness of this land that we call America is apparent. 250 years ago almost, our forefathers founded the United States of America. And that's proved to be one of the most significant events in human history. Along the eastern seaboard of this continent were then 13 weak, struggling colonies. They had different religious, different social, and different economic backgrounds. And they had vastly divergent interests in this new world. But there were a great many things that they had in common. And there was one thing definitely they had in common. They had a common resentment against domination from Europe. Particularly, they were resentful of the concept of taxation without representation. Patrick Henry and others spoke out boldly for separation from the mother countries across the Atlantic. There was a slogan that was most effective in stirring the people to think of rebellion. It stirred them to think of establishing a new nation. It was the expression, united we stand, and divided we fall. In the Continental Congress on July the 4th, 1776, there was the publication of one of the most significant documents in history, the Declaration of Independence. It began when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds that have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare 
that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Now, in that paragraph that I just read, did you notice how many times the reference is made to God in some form or another? It mentions nature's God, it mentions the Creator, and it mentions the supreme judge of the world. Remember some of the things from one of our earlier lessons as we studied this theme. Our founding fathers understood something. There is a direct connection between government and God. They understood there is a powerful connection between faith and freedom. Men crossed the Atlantic to secure liberty for their souls. And religious faith, religious faith was a primary reason for the founding of America. And that same religious faith guided her establishment as an independent nation. The secular progressives and revisionist historians have stolen, hijacked, and perverted the heritage of this land. They would have us believe that America was a secular nation founded by atheists and deists. Atheists, those who deny the existence of God. Deists, those who hold to a system of thought advocating natural religion based on human reason rather than revelation, emphasizing morality and denying the interference of the Creator with the laws of the universe. Agnostics, those who hold the view that any ultimate reality such as God is unknown and probably unknowable. They want us to believe that America is a product of enlightened thinking. And they want to brag that our success as a nation is due to our own intellect. To borrow a phrase, that, folks, is malarkey. Well, this document, this declaration, was signed by such notables as Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin. And they were joined then by a host of others. And a Latin expression, e pluribus unum, was chosen as the motto for the newly established nation. Literally, that phrase means from many one or out of many into one. Now, in the beginning... This fledgling nation tried a rather loose arrangement of working together. It was under the Articles of Confederation. And they soon realized something, that they needed a stronger binding force to keep this union together. And in accordance with that, a constitutional convention was held. And after much discussion the delegates presented this new nation with the Constitution. 
And that has been used through almost two and a half centuries. And yet, as valuable as those early founding documents are, the single greatest aspect of our heritage as a nation is religious. Those who first braved the waters and the dangers of an uncharted North Atlantic Ocean sought this new continent in order that they could have religious freedom. And ours has been a history of faith in God, faith in the divinity of Jesus Christ, and faith in the inspiration of the book that we call the Bible. Our coins, at least for the, for the moment, bear the stamp, In God we trust. It is in these deep religious convictions that we have furnished the foundation upon which this great nation has been built. And it all adds up to the great heritage that we as Americans possess. Part of that great heritage is a traditional work ethic. And that has seemed to have fallen on hard times in our age. It's always been an American tradition that no one is too good to do manual labor. There are some folks that have that obviously have specialized training and specialized background. And it often qualifies them for more difficult, more specialized work. But there is no one considered above doing the most humble of tasks that need to be done. I never shall forget several years ago, there was a a parcel of land behind my grandmother's house in Marshall that at one time had been designated as a street, and then it had been abandoned. And then part of the property back behind that, it was unclear as to who it belonged to, whether it belonged to the city or whether it belonged to the local college, and no one would claim it. And the city wouldn't come and mow it because it wasn't city property, and nobody else owned it. And uh, the grass and the weeds were neck high to a tall giraffe. And my grandmother was upset over it. She would call City Hall, Miss Perkins, we can't do anything about it. So she enlisted the aid of one of her good friends. And he tried to find out who owned it, who was responsible for it. And finally one day, she looked out her back window, and there's a man wearing a straw hat, Riding a bush hog, cleaning up this vacant property about an acre or so behind her house. And you know who it was? It was a former congressman, now federal judge, that couldn't figure out who owned it, so he decided he'd mow it so that she would be a happy widow. Now a lot of people, especially a lot of people serving in Congress today, would be too good and too proud to do something like that. But that's a part of our American work ethic. 
In the summertime, it's standard practice for men to do cooking in the backyard, no matter what their station in life might be. Whatever work needs to be done, as the occasion demands, no one's above anything. And everyone does whatever work is necessary and needs to be done. That's how it should be, folks. Wholesome work is honorable. In the very beginning of God's dealings with man on the earth, God placed him in the Garden of Eden. And He placed him there to dress and to keep the garden. That's what Genesis 2 and verse 15 says. God's plan called for man to work. And after Adam's sin, work got a little harder. We read this in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Curse is the ground for thy sake, and toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. The point is this. From the very beginning, work was a part of God's plan for mankind. And from one end of the Bible to the other, it's obvious that God approves the ownership of property and the honorableness of work. Let me say that again. God approves the ownership of property by individuals, not by the state. And God approves the honorableness of work. And in giving the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, God clearly indicates both of these principles. For example, the fourth commandment reads, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto Jehovah thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. That's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Well, now, when we shorten the Ten Commandments, we shorten that down, and thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so we read that passage, we remember that passage, and we think of that commandment as to reserve the Sabbath day for worship. Just like God expects those of us living in the Christian era to let the first day of the week be a day of worship. But look at the rest of that commandment. That commandment makes it quite clear. The other six days are days that are to be given to honorable, meaningful work. Six days shalt thou labor. But the seventh is a Sabbath unto Jehovah. The eighth commandment requires thou shalt not steal. A lot of folks forget that one. And the tenth commandment teaches, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Exodus 20, 15, 17. 
both of these passages indicate and show that mankind is not to take something that belongs to someone else, but is to provide for himself that which he needs. And all of this is in the context of putting God first, our fellow man second, and things last. The Apostle John wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, what about it, John? The love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15. In Luke chapter 12, and verse 15, Jesus said, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. You boil it down, things are not to rule our lives. God comes first, our fellow man second. But there is a place for things. And when it comes to things, stuff, material possessions, honorable work has to do with those material possessions. And that's at this point, I would sound a very strong warning. Because in the America that we live in in 2020, in the America of our day and our time, there is a great, great danger in the popular trend toward expecting something for nothing. Many people are drifting in the direction to get something without working for it. And that's a wrong attitude. It'll be a curse to the individual. It will be a curse to the nation as a whole. Now, one of the things we are to do is to help the poor. Absolutely. It is right and proper that Christian people should help those who cannot help themselves. That principle is taught in the Scriptures in no uncertain terms. Those who need help might be orphans. They might be folks that are sick. They might be elderly people. It may be those that have faced some special emergency. So what we're about to say in no way should be understood as implying a failure to be concerned about those who have legitimate needs or dodging the Christian responsibility to meet those legitimate needs. Now, having said that, we point out that sometimes in our efforts to care for those in need, our government has encouraged idleness, and a lack of responsibility. Sometimes our public welfare programs and our programs of unemployment insurance have encouraged people not to work. They've encouraged people not to provide for themselves when they were able-bodied and mentally capable of doing work. I read not long ago of a man who was an employer 
and he told of someone coming in and asking for a job. He was given the promise of a job and asked to report at 7 a.m. the next morning. He reported at the specified time, but did not go with the men into the plant to work. He waited till 8 o'clock and talked with the employer in his office and said simply, I've decided not to take the job. I've compared the wages I would get with my present welfare benefits and have taken into consideration what I would have to pay in taxes. And then when I add the cost of coming to work and other incidentals, I'm better off not to work. That is an unfortunate situation. But it happens. Now please, please do not misunderstand me. I have no desire to imply in any way that the motive behind setting up the programs were to willingly hinder initiative and foster idleness. But sadly, oftentimes, that has been the result. And now, right now, in our own day and time, we see politicians in a mad contest to see who can give away the most. We read about demands for a guaranteed annual wage. We hear the promise of a free college. We hear the clamor for a higher minimum wage. And our politicians are in a mad dash to see who can give away more and more and more. And the more that's given away, the less the pot is going to be to give it from. Now, it's at this point I want to turn to the Scriptures. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. But we, we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, and you may have lack of nothing. That's the King James Version. That same passage in the contemporary English version reads this way. But, my dear friends, we ask you to do even more. Try your best to live quietly, mind your own business, and work hard, just as we taught you to do. Then you will be respected by people who are not followers of the Lord, and you won't have to depend on anyone. This passage indicates that the quiet, solid life involves working with the hands in order that Christians might be well respected by those outside the church, and also that Christians may have need of nothing. Here's what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 12. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, 
but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by the Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. When Paul was at Corinth, he labored with Aquila and Priscilla in the making of tents. Honorable work. Honorable work is always commended in the Scriptures. Did you notice the emphatic sentence in that passage in 2 Thessalonians? If any will not work, neither let him eat. That means that every able-bodied, mentally capable person must work. That is God's will. Again, in another place, Paul wrote this. But if any provideth not for his own, and especially his own household, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. By honorable work, we are to support ourselves and our families. The values of good, honest, productive work. Work provides the necessities of life for ourselves and for others. Honest work will provide food and clothing and shelter and the other necessities of life. And the worker then has something to share with those in need. Remember these words. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good that he may have whereof to give to him that needeth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Work renders service to others. The farmer, the manufacturer, the merchant, the doctor, and countless others provide necessary services for their fellow man. Work brings and provides personal maturity and development. The pioneers who settled this great American continent were hard-working people. People who felled trees, cleared land, planted crops, built houses, and all those other things. And they grew and they developed through their hard work. And work does something else. Work prevents the temptations of idleness. Those who are doing constructive work don't have the time to fall into the temptations that have caused so many people to succumb to temptation. Hard-working people are honest, thrifty, 
God-fearing, moral, and generally free from the weaknesses of those who are generally idle. Work is something that brings us satisfaction. There are few joys as deeply satisfying as a job well done, especially if that job is a benefit to our fellow man. Here's what Moses wrote in the 90th Psalm. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. That's Psalms chapter 90, verses 16 and 17. Good, honest work is honorable. That doesn't seem to be a phrase or an example or a concept that's much in vogue in America today. But we must never forget that this is a basic principle taught throughout the entire Bible. The idea of getting something for nothing, promoted by many cheap politicians, is a shallow idea that ultimately brings suffering and disappointment to the individual, and it brings weakness to the nation. Let's avoid that alternative in favor of constructive and meaningful work. Our time is gone. Until we're together again, may the Lord richly bless and keep you, is our prayer in Jesus' name.